Welcome back to the Gospel Enthusiast Podcast. I am Braden Friesen. That is Derek Friesen. Hello. That is Ben Martins. Hello. And we are very excited to be back after we had a postponed for a week. We are excited to be talking about Romans 9. Um, before we get into that, we, uh, we'll go talk a little bit about this this one news story I'm sure some of y'all have y'all have heard of, but which is kind of a frustrating thing as Christians to hear, but at the same time we, we kind of know that, or not kind of know, we do know that the world hates, hates God. And so, uh, Derek, what is that? What is that article there? Or I guess story. Well, the story, I guess, is the Facebook event that happened this past week, right? Um, this Facebook event was called Global Middle Finger to End Christianity. And I guess it was in response to uh, there was a, I think, a global prayer to end atheism, yeah. and it didn't work. I'm still a Christian, <laughs> and I'm sure there's still atheists. Yeah, but um, actually, I would. We'll, we'll talk about that. But <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> anyways, so this this event was um, that you know this is. I'll quote from their page what the purpose of this event was. Quote, Everybody give a big middle finger to the sky to end Christianity and create more atheists while fighting the global prayer so their sky daddy won't snatch us up. End quote. <laughs> and That yeah. is an interesting... I, I find this quite, um, first of all, incredibly fr- f- uh, frustrating. Blasphemous. Um the amount of blasphemy on that page, and it, it's just sickening, and it's it's <laughs> infuriating. Uh, but it's also incredibly sad, um, because these are people who are lost, and there was over 10,000 people that re- responded to this event, right? So, um, well, the, 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 One of the great ironies about uh, about this as well is there's, there's a renowned atheist, and I cannot recall his name, and, and I'm going to quote him, or I'm going to paraphrase him. Um, I can't remember was it uh, Christopher Hitchens or who it was um, but basically had said that um, you know the, the, the net good when it came to Christian morals was a good like it was a the Christian morals were a net good on society and so it's just kind of ironic seeing them like and I know that they don't believe in God and stuff but still for them to be so hostile toward what even other proclaimed atheists have said is a net good for humanity, mm-hmm. um, at least the, the moralistic side of it anyway. Um, well, it's it, just it makes me think of this, this uh, quote that I had heard, that God, God doesn't believe in atheists. Um, you know, the Bible says that everyone is without excuse and that, you know, everyone can, knows that God is there. So there's no, really there's no such thing as an atheist. They all they all know God exists. Yeah, that's why I was going to bring up that point. They I was just suppress argue that it a little bit for yeah. you. <clears throat> but it's kind of it's kind of well, obviously, like you said, it's sad. It's and I looked at took a look at the page as well, and it, it is quite blasphemous. A lot of the stuff that is posted on there, but some of the stuff they're posted on there as well is they don't understand what true Christianity is. They have a very limited understanding. They just believe that God is. Um, you know, he hates people and he's unloving and it's just, you know, do your own thing and stuff like that. But that's, it's not what Christianity is. And if you are an atheist who, uh, well, 
claim to be an atheist. You're agnostic, I'm sorry to tell you. Um, but allow us to tell you what, what the gospel really is, what Christianity really is. Yeah, because the, the, the sad truth is that the, I would say the two main forms of Christianity that get, get propelled to the world are either Roman Catholicism, which is salvation by works, or the, the prosperity gospel, which I don't even know if they talk about salvation all that much because it's all about here. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, the biblical gospel is not in common circles anymore. It's all, um, I mean, there are still s some places, like there is <coughs> some, it's there, but I mean, so many people, when they talk about Christianity, they're either referring to Catholicism or, or some, so, some mm -hmm. form of word of faith or something like that. Yeah, uh, definitely, I have questions uh, when I read pages like this and like that comment I or that quote I read earlier about the whole purpose of it. First of all, why are they giving a middle finger to the sky uh, if they don't th don't believe in God? You know who are they who are they giving a middle finger to? Yeah. You know, and and how exactly does this create more atheists? Like. But it makes it makes no sense whatsoever. This whole the whole event makes absolutely no sense. Well, like I said before, this whole thing started. I was like, they might actually be making more Christians. Yeah. People are like, wait, they actually believe someone's up there. Let me take a look, a deeper look into this. Maybe I haven't done my due diligence, and you know, <laughs> maybe God will use. Well, God will use that for His glory in some way. Yeah, exactly. Just a matter of a matter of how. Well, enough of those goofballs trying to flip off the sky randomly. Let's move right on to Romans 9, shall we? That right. sounds good. Okay. Our actual top topic of and today. And the actual gospel. No, we're very excited. This is a very heavy um, chapter. I know that there's probably going to be some where we're going to... If there is any time that we're going to get messages regarding our stance on something... I know we don't normally get much feedback, but if there's a time, I feel like this is going to be the episode. Like, what? Are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I would love to. I would love to I would hear love feedback. feedback. We like we talked about with jo when Josh was here a couple weeks ago. Uh, we don't usually get a lot of feedback, um, but you know, uh, we would love to hear your feedback. We know we're not the authority on this matter on on any matter uh, no. of the Bible. <laughs> um, we can be corrected. We can be. You know, we would love to be corrected. If we're wrong, we'd love to be pointed, uh, shown that we're wrong and, nothing and more be corrected. Than, than that. We don't, not, so, nothing more than that. So please send your feedback to us. That being said, this is it, like, like I said, this is a heavy, heavy chapter, um, but it's such a beautiful chapter. And I think there's things that we tend to focus on, we're, we'll, and we'll get into it soon, but there's things we focus on oftentimes in regards to certain um, phrasing and and, and verses and passages that we focus on one side or we focus almost what seems to be the negative side of things when in reality we, we should especially as Christians we should see the, the good side of it like um, in verse 13 of Romans 9 we'll get to there but it says um, Jacob I loved Esau I hated we'll discuss that soon but um, oftentimes we we focus on the one half of that, and not the other side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so we'll, we'll discuss that. We'll jump right in now, um, and I think we're just gonna go what? Uh, 
couple yeah, I guess, verses at a time, a couple little... Uh, I guess, first of all, we want to establish the context of the of Yeah, the, the yeah, yeah, of yeah. I should have done that. Because right? oftentimes this chapter can be almost pulled out of, con- on, out of context, sorry, and seen as its own entity, like, um, you know, chapter 9 and then, you know, whatever. But in reality, there were no chapters when Paul wrote the letter. Right. It's just a continuous exactly. letter. And so... You know, I guess we've seen a number of different uh, ways that this chapter has been seen. You know, oftentimes it's viewed as, you know, um, nations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yep. as, as na- physical nations, yep. right? Yep. Um, but if we look at it in context, we're, we're continuing on from chapter 8 where, you know, Paul just finished talking about those who God has called and how, you know, they... Um, how nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ. And that's where we find Paul starting off this letter, just or, or this part of the letter, just coming off of that, right? So that would keep it in context there. And uh, it appears to answer a question that may come up, right? Uh, Paul just finished talking about um, how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And now he starts talking about, you know, Israel. And, and you know, people may have seen it as, you know, how, how can it be true and how can we trust that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ if the promise of Israel wasn't fulfilled? And so we see, see Paul answer that question in this chapter. Um, and so, like, I mean, yeah, like, before, before we get to that part of it, what Paul is saying, because of this belief that the Jews have that they're saved regardless, um, is that he has this great sorrow. Uh, to the point where he says that if he that he says that he could wish that he himself were you know anathema you know like cursed by God to to save his brethren, um, but obviously he can't do that. Uh, the one thing I thought of in that regard is I mean um, there's groups of of of, of uh, Christians and Calvinists called the hyper-Calvinists, basically they believe that, you know, God's will is going to happen. They don't have to witness. They don't have to do anything that God's going to do everything, that they're completely content to just live their life and, and not be involved in ministry. And obviously Paul Paul's attitude toward his kinsmen would completely refute that. Um, he is so broken over over the the, the state of, of his people and, and their, their their lack of belief that he, um, if, if it were possible, would wish himself to be anathema for the sake of his kinsmen, which is a completely different attitude than that of, of what we would call hyper-Calvinist. Yeah, and so as Christians, we should pray for the same type of attitude that Paul has here for his kinsmen, for unbelievers, that we would have that same love for them and that desire for them that if if at all possible we could save them we would um obviously we can't make atonement for anyone just like paul can't uh, make atonement for anyone um only christ can uh we even see the same attitude in exodus 32 verse uh, 30 to 35 um after the golden calf moses goes before the lord wanting to make atonement on behalf of the people even asking the lord to be blotted out of his book on the people's behalf so Paul has this great, um, rem- well, I guess it would be remorse or distress that he's in for his for his kinsmen, which are kinsmen according to the flesh. It says, um, who are who are brethren because they're both Jews, they're both uh, both Israelites. But at the same time, we we look forward to or we look ahead to verse six. 
where it says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And just as not all who profess Christ are necessarily of Christ. Hmm. Um, Matthew seven twenty one through 23 talks about this. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not, um, <coughs> excuse me. We have to be very, very careful here to not say, well, this is, well, the nation of Israel you know, this right. is in reference to the nation of Israel. No, it's not. No, this is in reference to personal salvation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's in it's in reference to uh, true Israel. It's in reference to a nation in a way, but it it re- this chapter really talks about how God elects individuals to be part of His nation, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we see in you know Paul uses in verse six to thirteen. Uh, he he breaks down kind of how God's election, how God used election or did election in the Old Testament, right? So, yeah, the Israelites they had depended on their their lineage for salvation. Um, they would call themselves the sons of Abraham, and so th- through the, through him they were saved essentially, um, because they considered themselves sons like the the nation of the promise. But the reality is, I mean, even Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the promised son. Isaac was, and so even. With, with Isaac, there was a story there as well. Um, uh, Isaac had two sons, twins. One was Jacob and one, one was Esau. And yet before they were born, uh, God says that uh, one I have loved and one I have hated. He loved Jacob and hated Esau. And that's, that's kind of the crux that, or the, or the beginning of, of the debate between uh, theologies. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, well, ultimately that point there would, would be a um, kind of a, a cornerstone to unconditional election. R.C. Sproul would um, or defined unconditional or sovereign election as this. The reformed view of election known as unconditional election means that God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that induces him to save us. Rather, election rests on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he pleases he is pleased to save, end quote. And we look at verse uh, 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice had said, not because of works, because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, and we'll get into that yet soon. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right. And when we, we talk about that verse... Um, <clears throat> Pardon me. When we talk about the verse where it it talks about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, I have heard a number of different ways that that gets explained. Um, mm-hmm. And you you point you touched right there on unconditional election, and the Bible is very clear that election is unconditional that it's not based on our works. Mm-hmm. It is solely based on the one who calls who determines election, not the one who does the work. Um, in that the sense, it's not our works. But so I've heard it explained so often, Jacob and Esau, where, you know, that God foresaw that Jacob would love him and be, you know, act a certain way, live one way, but Esau would live another. And so that for that reason, God elected Jacob over Esau. Yep. But like you pointed out right there, it says in this verse that, you know, first of all, they had the same father, the same mother. Yep. They were twins. Yep. They, they were before their birth, they were basically exactly the same. Absolutely. There was nothing separating one over the other. And it says right there, like you touched on in verse 11, though they were not born 
and had done nothing good or bad. It was only in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That was the reason. Yeah, it's all grace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other way, the other thing I see or have heard um, in Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, is that you know, hated doesn't actually translate to hate. Hate it means loved less. Um, there are certain passages in the Bible where, where when it talks about hate, it it, it refers to be loved less. We look at um, uh, passages like Luke fourteen twenty six, when Jesus says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother." Uh, they are not worthy to be my disciple. But we see the, 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 the Matthew's account of that exact same thing, and we see in Matthew ten thirty seven where it talks about that the, it's loving less, that if, does, if they don't come to me, loving me more than, the, than them, yeah. right? So in that comparison, but if we look at Jacob and Esau, and we look at, let's look at the passage in Malachi 1, verse 2 to 3, where it says, where God says to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. I don't know about you. <laughs> a lot like hate. Yeah, I don't know about you, but that definitely doesn't sound like he, you just loved him less. Uh, the, Can I... The point, I guess, is Jacob was God's cho- you know, God chose Jacob for or for the descendants to come through, and Esau, you know, he loved Jacob with a saving type of love, whereas J- Esau was not loved with a saving type of love and was God's enemy. Can I make a point here quickly? Sure. We have as as humans, we obviously we have we're you know fallen flesh. We have twisted minds and i think our understanding of hate is is completely different than the understanding of god's idea of hate what hate is Mm -hmm. when god hates um as he says in psalm 5 all those who do iniquity or he says here in romans 9 that god hated esau or esau i have hated his hatred is is righteous Mm -hmm. it is just um because God is a holy God, that no sin can come before him that is not justified already. He is completely right in hating those who do iniquity. Mm-hmm. If if God said today that I'm not going to save anybody, he would be completely right in doing so. Or, or in, you know, like, if God had chose not to save anybody, he would have been completely right in doing so. Because grace is an unmerited gift. It is something that is given to us. It is love. It is mercy, and so that that that's something that we have so often. Um, I think had misunderstanding of. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just another point too in in regards to Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. We should never be shocked or appalled at Scripture when it tells us that God hated Esau. To us as Christians, that should be clear. We too were once enemies of God. Psalm 5 tells us that God hated all that, all those who do iniquity. However, the thing that should jump out to us the most is that God loved Jacob. That God is love and he is still justice. James Dorman IV said, One cannot complain that the gate is narrow who stands amazed that the gate is open. Yeah, and on that point too, I mean, 
kind of going back a little bit to what you were saying earlier, Derek, about some people will say God foreknew the choices of Jacob and Esau. And that, that, that kind of checks out on Esau's behalf. Okay, yeah, Esau was a warring man. He was uh, a godless man. But what about Jacob? Was he a godly man? Well, when we look at the story of Jacob, one of the in his early life, the things that sticks out, well, he uh, he cheated his, his brother out of a birthright with a bowl of lentils. <laughs> um, then he stole the blessing from his father. And when asked if it was Esau or Jacob... He lied and doubled down and said that he was Esau. So the the life of Jacob early on that we have of history of him, it's not this like glaring complexion of, of a Christ like man. This is this is a guy who's um, despite who he is, you know, like I mean Romans three says all have fallen, so um, we know that that there's no merit that Jacob has and he shows it in his life early on. That there's no merit that he has that would earn God's favor. It is purely, like you said, um, uh, God, uh, what's the phrase? Well, it's, his, it's his good pleasure. That, yeah, to like save he's anyone. completing Absolutely. his purpose. Like he's continuing his election that what he has purposed. And so it, it's not at all on our, on our merit. Well, one thing, one thing I think we all have as Christians, we tend to do from time to time is when we look at these uh, quote-unquote heroes of the Old Testament, um, we tend to look at them as though they are, you know, up on a pedestal, that they are somehow, you know, more righteous than us, that they are somehow more, you know, you know better than us, and that we should look at parts of the or look at at their life and try and you know glean things to to uh, do the same as they do type of thing, but we. <laughs> I was reading about, um, or listening, I think I was listening to a podcast about it. I think that's where it was. But uh, in the story of Jacob, and the fact that Jacob got the blessing at all, after all the deception that he did, and, like, he was he was a deceiver, like, that that was all of grace. It's not that Jacob, you know, we look at Jacob's li- uh, life, especially his early life, and we're like, oh, what can we glean from that? Well, what you can glean from that is the fact that Jacob was a terrible sinner and God still had mercy on him. That's what you can glean from that. And that's the same thing that we we can glean at, or that we can apply to our lives. You know, we are sinners. And the fact that God has mercy on us at all is um, is all of grace. I guess Braden mentioned you mentioned before the episode that you were going to have a question and it kind of tied in on the the next verse here where it asks if there is injustice you know on on God's part yeah yeah uh, did you have a you had a question there well I, I was going to ask you or, or both of you guys um, in regards to that question I was going to say the question then is this regarding the Jacob and Esau is God justified in showing grace to some and not others is that fair yeah and I think I think you actually touched on it earlier you you were talking about it earlier with especially bit, when you yeah, brought up the, so. the quote of the gate being narrow and stuff yeah. but I guess my answer when when we talked about this prior to the episode my answer that I had come up with I'll, I'll say it now anyways right but it's very very much along the same lines of what you just said there's a common misconception among the world and even in parts of the church um, that this idea of God choosing some to save and passing over others is somehow unjust. 
But what those people are not understanding is that God is, he's not under an obligation to save anyone whatsoever. There's no obligation to save anyone. So, I mean, as you touched on earlier, Ben, in Romans 3, we covered in a previous episode, uh, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that, you know, we look at Romans 6, where it says that we're all deserving of wages and those wages are death. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. Those wages are just, right? Um, And the fact that God saves one sinner, even one, is all of grace. And I think, Brian, you touched on this point as well. You know, grace is undeserved merit or undeserved or unmerited favor. And the thing is, it appe- we see in the world so many people that argue that, you know, God is unjust for saving some, for electing some to salvation and not s- and passing over others. They, they, they seem to try and demand more grace. But you can't, you can't demand more grace. Grace is all unmerited and all undeserved. You can't demand it. Yeah. You can demand justice, but the fact remains that no one has ever received injustice at the hands of God. Those who are saved received mercy, and those who aren't saved, they get justice. Yeah. I'm going to paraphrase Pastor John Snyder um, in a sermon in regards to Romans 9, which I found very helpful. Um, I might be able to add that link to our... Instagram or Facebook, but he's, um, just to paraphrase, it says, a man is homesick, but he's not really sick, and takes a whole week off of work, while another man works the whole week laboring laboring away at his job. At the end of the week, the boss comes up to the man, who worked all week, hands him a paycheck, and says, here's your gift. The man says, well, it's not a gift, I worked for it. Is it, so is it really a gift? No, it is not. That would be justice. The man is getting what he deserves, what he has earned. If the man who didn't work at all and pretended to be sick doesn't get a paycheck, it's also justice. However, if the man who didn't work all week comes to the boss and says, Sir, I wasn't really sick all week, and I sat at home and I just watched TV and ate food all day, but now bills are piling up, and I'm sorry for my decision to pretend to be sick and it won't happen again, may I please receive a paycheck? If the boss gives him a paycheck, that is mercy. That is grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's undeserved. It's undeserved. It is unmerited. We could do nothing to earn it. And and Paul answers this question of unjust of injustice. You know, may it never be, or God forbid, right? But he answers it from from a point of authority, where he where he or a point of God's authority, where he points out that God says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy." And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is, it, it is all, you know, it says there, it does not depend on human will or exertion. It's mm-hmm. all on God who has mercy. Well, and he, he even makes the, the point in, in from the opposite perspective because people, because uh, we're, we're talking about how, like, God doesn't need a reason to, to save anyone who he wants to save. Mm-hmm. But Paul makes the, the, the argument in the opposite way as well. And he cites um, Exodus 9, I'm going to think, 16 or within that group of, of, of texts there um, regarding Pharaoh this is yeah regarding yeah. Pharaoh this is verse 16 um, <clears throat> but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth and so um, and we, we see that that in that story uh, God has hardened Pharaoh's heart mm-hmm. and so then the question is well did God choose Pharaoh did God set him up to to fail essentially um, because 
it, you know, like so often we hear like, you know, it's it's all about your choice and you we choose to serve God. I mean, yeah, yeah there's a there's definitely the the element of of our wills, one hundred percent. And Pharaoh was dead set against God, so. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that he was trying to serve God, but but God also was saying that he set up Pharaoh and hardened his heart to show his power. And so God is, is showing that he is completely sovereign to choose and elect those who he wants to save, but also he is able to use those who are condemned to, to glorify himself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we see... Um, that God has mercy on whoever he wills and he will harden whoever he wills. So what exactly does it mean by harden? Um, uh, we see a passive rather than an active hardening. You know, God does not create fresh evil in the heart, but rather passes over them, removing his restraining grace and giving them over to their own evil Im- impulses. This, uh, I guess, this part with Pharaoh also causes us to look at the other side of election. You know, there's there's... There's election and then there's retro, retrobation, retro, reprobation. My goodness, I cannot speak. Good job, Derek. Um, anyways, I, I just want to read. <laughs> I just want to read from a note uh, in the Reformation Study Bible that I was reading as I um, was studying for this. So uh, I will start. Quote: Every coin has a flip side. There is also a flip side to the doctrine of election. Election refers to only one aspect of the broader question of predestination. The other side of the coin is the question of reprobation. God declared that he loved Jacob but hated Esau. How are we to understand this reference to divine hatred? Predestination is double. The only way to avoid the doctrine of double predestination is to either affirm that God predestinates everybody to election or that he predestinates no one to either election or reprobation. Since the Bible clearly teaches predestination to election and denies universal salvation, we must conclude that predestination is double. It includes both election and repro- reprobation. Double predestination is unavoidable if we take scripture serious- seriously. What is crucial, however, is how double predestination is understood. Some have viewed double predestination as a matter of equal causation, where God is equally responsible for causing the reprobate to not believe as he is for causing the elect to believe. We call this a positive-positive view of predestination. The positive-positive view of predestination teaches that God positively and actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to work grace in their hearts <coughs> pardon me, and bring them to faith. Likewise, in the case of the reprobates, he works evil in the heart of the reprobate and actively prevents them from coming to faith. This view has often been called hyper-Calvinism because it goes beyond uh, the view of Calvin, Luther, and the other reformers. The reformed view of double predestination follows a positive-negative schema. In the case of the elect, God intervenes and positively and actively works grace in their souls and brings them to a saving faith. He unilaterally regenerates the elect and ensures their salvation. In the case of the reprobate, he does not work evil in them or prevent them from coming to faith. Rather, he passes over them leaving them to their own sinful devices. In this view, there is no symmetry of divine action. God's activity is asymmetrical between the elect and the retrobate, reprobate. There is, however, a kind of equal ultimacy. The reprobate who are passed over by God are ultimately doomed, and their damnation is as certain as, yeah, is as certain and sure 
as the ultimate salvation of the elect. The problem is linked to biblical statements such as those regarding God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or that the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is beyond dispute. The question remains, how did God harden Pharaoh? Luther argued for a passive rather than an active hardening. That is, God did not create fresh evil in Pharaoh's heart. There was already enough evil present in Pharaoh's heart to incline him to resist the will of God at every turn. All God ever had to do to harden anybody is remove his restraining grace from them and give them over to their own evil impulses. This is precisely what God did, or what God does to the damned in hell. He abandons, abandons them to in their own wickedness. End quote. Well, in a way, you've already answered it, but I'm going to ask the question anyways, and then I'm going to answer it with another quote. (laughs) One might refute that, well, if God hardens whom he desires, and and thankfully you've already answered this to the, pretty much to the utmost, how can anyone be held accountable? How how are we as, uh, how how can man's responsibility in God's sovereign election, Mm -hmm. um, Coexist. Coexist. That's the word. Thank you, Derek. Yep. Um, Reformation Study Bible says, quote, By what right can God lay the blame for the sins on those those he hardened against himself? Paul answers partially in terms of human experience in verse 20 and 21. It is unreasonable and irreverent for anyone to question the rightness of God's ways. Potters have every right to do as they please with the clay, Isaiah 64, verse 8. All people belong to the same lump. Uh in verses 10 through 13, I believe that's in Isaiah as well, of fallen humanity in Adam, five, uh, Romans 5, 12 through 14, all actively sin even before God judicially hardens them in their commitment to ungodliness and unrighteousness, 1, 18 through 28. That God should show mercy to any from the Adamic lump and create vessels of honor from it, <coughs> excuse me, from it is the kindness of grace. That others should become vessels for lesser use is a matter of his sovereign prerogative and is itself a display of perfect justice towards them, end quote. Hmm. I love how Paul initially answers the question that he knows is going to be brought up, right? That you brought mm-hmm. up there. You know, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? And he just, he, he turns it on its head and, you know, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You know, we've seen that in... Th- in the Bible, in other places, that same type of response. Who, who are you? Like, we, who do we think we are? That you know, the created being has no right to judge the creator. Um, we are, we're creatures from the dust, and but yet we think so highly of ourselves that we are somehow wiser and more just than the infinite God. Um, I'm just going to add a quote here that I found from John MacArthur, where he says, "Quote, in his perfect wisdom, wisdom." And in perfect righteousness and justice, God has destined some people for salvation by his grace, and because of their sin and unbelief, has left others to damnation by his wrath. Many critics of this doctrine, supposedly coming to the defense of God's justice, fail to acknowledge that every human being since the fall has deserved nothing but God's just condemnation to an eternity in hell. If God were to exercise only his justice, no person would ever be saved. It is therefore hardly unjust if, according to his sovereign grace, he chooses to elect some sinners to salvation. He goes on, Continuing simply to proclaim God's sovereign righteousness and justice, rather than try and explain it, Paul turns the question back on those who would, a- who would question the Lord. 
On the contrary, he says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, it is blasphemous even to ask the question, or even to question, not mention deny God's right to hold men accountable when they are captives of his sovereign will. It is obvious from Paul's wording that the ones who might be asking such questions would not be seeking God's truth, but rather self-justification, attempting to excuse their own unbelief, sinfulness, ignorance, and spiritual rebellion. They would rather or be apt to accuse God of injustice, end, end quote. This, uh, this analogy that Paul uses of, of clay and, and uh, vessels of honor and, and, and common use, that was, a, if I'm correct, that was the, the analogy that really kind of won me over for so long. I thought of, I was a more of an a Arminian point of view or a, a, at least a point of view where I choose choose salvation essentially uh I, I didn't really believe in any sort of predestination or anything anything like that and then going through 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 romans um especially this this piece here um i uh, reading that I, I realized that you know like uh, there are that god can create whoever he wants he can do whatever he wants he's completely sovereign and just to do so and um, especially now reading like uh, the way Paul describes uh, from the same lump, the mm-hmm. same group of, of uh, willingly sinful, ignorant people who hate God, right. God can create. Uh, he can save some of those people for, for honorable use and he can uh, leave the rest of them to their own damnation mm-hmm. uh, for you know, common use. And it's, uh, it was just a, a really clear picture uh, that, that Paul paints here of, of God's mercy mm-hmm. and justice. Well, we, <clears throat> that brings me to a note that I, I wanted to make on verse 22 and 23. Uh, in those verses, we read um, him say, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make riches or make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And... Uh, I guess it was brought up, <clears throat> I forget who said it, but I think it was someone from church had, had sent it on the group chat at one point, and, it, and, and this kind of this idea or this, this point that he made, and uh, it really kind of set it off that every time I look at this, these verses, I see it now. Um, but we look at uh, verse 22 where it says, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then we look at verse 23, and, and it's, it's different. It says, vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And um, there's, a, there's a difference in the, in the preparing of it. Um, I, I want to read a note from, or it was from an article in Table Talk magazine, which is from Ligonier Ministries, where it says, quote, This degree, decree of reprobation is God's action in leaving some people in their state of (coughs) sinfulness, thus leading to their damnation. The verb prepare in verse 22 is passive as as opposed to its active use in verse 23, where it refers to God's work of election uh, of some to salvation. Out of the mass of humanity, God actively elects some to salvation and passes over the rest, leaving them in their wickedness, like, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, though it remains mysterious as to how God ordains all things and yet is not responsible for evil, we must affirm both truths. It, doesn't, it does help us to see how God is just when his decree of reprobation is passive, not active. 
It also strengthens our assurance to know that God's electing grace is so active and sure that we will love him forever. Um, you know, and that's that's one point that, or there's a point that I guess uh, I never thought of. If I go by personal, I never thought of it years ago. And in the early, especially my early years of coming to faith, um, I never thought of it that, you know, God as the creator... First of all, you know, you brought up this point. God as the creator has the right over his creation. And, you know, we, growing up, I know we come from, you know, me and Braden obviously come from a similar, because uh, we came from the same household. Uh, <laughs> but you and I, uh, Ben, we, we came from a different household, but similar, you know, our, our journey to faith and stuff was similar. Mm-hmm. But it was something that we, we never necessarily really learned early on is that, you know, God as creator has the, this right to do whatever he will with what he creates. We never think of it, you know, we, we, and <clears throat> so when I came to faith and I started to understand these things, this, it, it was eye opening. But one thing I never really saw was the fact that, uh, God is, because God is holy, his glory is manifest equally in the punishment of sinful men as it is in the salvation of saints. Mm-hmm. You know, God will be glorified equally by sa- the salvation of saints, and he will be also be glorified equally uh, by the punishment of sinful men, because that is justice. It is, it is proving his attribute of justice and his holiness that that happens, and he'll be glorified by both. But uh, all this to say, like, I look at that, that point that I can't, I can't now get out of my mind when I read these verses is, you know, the active the passive versus the active of prepare that God passes over, you know, those vessels of mercy. He, he, you know, like the, what, what does it say in the, the, uh, the verse, it says, you know, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power know endured with much patience. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he did that, you know, no, so that he can make known the riches of glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand that's that's the predestination that's election there and you know and then we go on further where it says even us whom he called not just from among jews but from gentiles only and it that uh, that kind of leads us into the final portion of this uh, passage i said gentiles only but i think you meant gentiles also (laughs) well Did I read it wrong? Anyways, I think it says, whom, whom he also called, not from among Ju- Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. There we go. That makes it a, <laughs> a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. I'll <laughs> clean that up. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, as we, as we transition to the end of the chapter and talk, um, as Paul references Hosea saying, I will call those who are not my people, my people in reference to the Gentiles mm-hmm. and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there. They should be called the sons of the living God. And then he references also Isaiah crying out and it cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sand of the sea. It is the remnant that will be saved for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And so when he's talking here, about the remnant that will be saved. This is, he is ultimately throwing back to the beginning of the chapter where not all Israel is true Israel. Mm -hmm. 
and you can uh, but this remnant will be saved. These people that God has chosen for Himself, and we see, we see even in the high priestly prayer. Sorry, I'm just trying to get my Bible sorted out here. Um, in the high priestly player, prayer, player, prayer, um, that that Jesus doesn't pray for for all of humanity. He prays for those who the Father has already given Him, mm-hmm. and yeah. so we, we can see that that God has before time in His perfect wisdom and in, in His sovereign um, grace, He has chosen who whom He will save and, and those who He will leave up to to their own devices, to their own flesh. And wickedness. Well, to your point there too. I mean, just just a quick glance over to Ephesians uh, one verse four, where uh, Paul writes, um, "Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love." Mm-hmm. Or sorry, <laughs> in love is a next sentence, but uh, but the point being is that that before the foundation of the world is that we were predestined. So mm-hmm. God uh, didn't wait for us to make choices and then and then choose us based on what we would do, but rather that he chose us based on his mercy and, and his good pleasure. And um, the rest played out as it as he had planned it, not not the way we had planned it. <coughs> so, so, do you have a point? I, I just had a couple questions. But well, I had a question <coughs> for you guys too. Sure. Sure. Sorry. So the question then... Or a question that I have, and I'm sure you probably actually have the same one. But we we go to the end of the chapter here, and it talk, talks about how, uh, or or we go through this chapter. Sorry, I totally got my my mind mixed up here. We go through the chapter, and we've been talking about election and predestination, salvation. Um, so how do you, how do chapters like this, and then chapters such or passages where it says all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved how, how did how did those work out in terms of election but all those who call upon the name will be saved uh, the name of the Lord will be saved <clears throat> I know we're definitely going to have to talk about it in the next episode because it is in chapter 10 where it does say that all who call upon the Lord shall be saved um, but there is this that's this one of those things we're never going to fully truly understand I think right where there is this promise that, you know, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's this invitation, but yet there is still this that God will save whom He saves. Yeah. You know, God will. Um, you know, we we hear that. You know, faith is a gift. That you know, repentance is a gift. We hear in different areas in the in the um, scriptures. And so, you know, and and not to mention talking about being born again. Mm-hmm. These are these are things that they precede our faith, and so um, as we've seen here, you know, God will harden whom He hardens and have mercy on whom He will have mercy. I think the way I understand it is that only the elect will call upon the Lord. I will say that's this. that's the way I that's the way I understand it. If, yeah. if it makes sense, I mean, you can further. Um, I, I will I will share a quote by Charles Spurgeon. This would be in regards to that. I'll call upon the name of the Lord or those who hear his voice. Is it in a, a refer- reference to evangelism? It is in reference to evangelism. Because that was part of my question. One question I was well, going to say is... Well, then ask your question quickly is, so I can answer it. Is how, how does a... Or, um, how does a chapter like this, which talks so much of the sovereignty and the election of God, how does that affect us in regards to our evangelism to other people? I'm going to piggyback off of Charles Spurgeon right now 
He says, quote, Our Savior has bidden us to preach the gospel to every creature in Mark 16, verse 15. He has not said, Preach it only to the elect. And though that might seem to be the most logical thing for us to do, yet since he is not pleased to stamp the elect in their foreheads or put any distinctive mark upon them, it would be an impossible task for us to perform. When we preach the gospel to every creature, the gospel makes its own division, and Christ's sheep hear his voice and follow him. Mm-hmm. End quote. So I, that has helped me in understanding, especially when I first came to Reformed theology. I'm like, well, okay, how does that make any sense? Like, But I know that I am commanded to go Mm-hmm. Pre, um, share the gospel amongst the nations but I also know that God is sovereign so God will use man mm-hmm. to bring his word to his people now God will save whom he will save mm-hmm. but he uses man as a tool for to bring other men and women to himself right and I think we'll talk about it more next episode because next episode we're going into chapter 10 where it where, like I said before, that verse you mentioned, you know, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved is in that chapter, but also, you know, how will they know if they, if no one preaches and um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. These are in the, in that chapter, and so it, it really will be something that is needs to be touched on next um, time. But uh, I enjoy it. I mean, it, it, it gives, it kind of gives a comfort and an ease to evangelism. Um, and I know someone from church, uh, told us, well, we, we were on the way to a Bible study one time, you know, it gives, a, it gives an ease to evangelism because you can go and you can look like a fool preaching the gospel and you can, you know, just go and preach the gospel. And you know what? You're not trying to entice people with your lovely words. You're not trying to, you know, make, force people to understand. You're not trying to forcefully convert them. You're not trying to any of this stuff. You preach the gospel. God will figure out who's saved. God will draw those to himself. The Holy Spirit will work in them, drawing them to Christ. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know one thing I used to struggle with so much, and occasionally I do uh, when it comes to evangelism, is you know I want to sound, or what am I going to sound like? Am I going to have the right words and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. But what this really helps us to understand is if we just go and we preach the gospel... Um, to everyone, it's not up to us to determine, you know, who's saved or try to save them. God will save whom he will save. I guess the other question I had in regards to this chapter is, um, you know, what, what, uh, what should this chapter kind of say to, to Christians? Like what, what should, uh, um, I'm wording that wrong. I guess I'll just I'll just give what I have here. This you know this section I think, of scripture. I feel like I still have an answer for you, for sure. that question. Go ahead. So can you just reword the question just quickly, just so I can have a fresh? I don't know if I can reword the question. I forget how I worded it the first time. What, what this Christian, um, uh, chapter should mean? Yeah, to yeah like what or? what what does this chapter mean to Christians? What should this chapter give to Christians? Type of idea. Um, I will say this: this chapter should give you, and I'm gonna. Uh, reiterate that quote that I had before this chapter should give you great joy um, this, as a Christian this should give you tremendous joy that that you were uh, you have been so blessed to have such a sovereign and gracious God bestow his love and mercy upon you mm-hmm. um, that quote that I was uh, tr- now trying to remember 
I'm just going to paraphrase it, but we should not be so fixated upon the um, the narrow gate, but we, we should be more fixated on that the gate is open. Yeah. And that <coughs> what I understand of that pass or of that quote is that that yes, the gate may be narrow, but but God and his his sovereign grace and his mercy and love and and he is one who is faithful to finish the good work in you who, who has started a good work in you is faithful to finish it I should say mm-hmm. he is going to um, lead you home lead you home to eternity and so that should be this chapter should give you great joy that there in God's sovereign election you can't change his mind and we talked about that in uh, the immutability of God so this this chapter as a Christian should give you great joy it should um, bring you comfort uh, that's just, my take on ju- it. I mean, just to, just to touch on that quote, and I love that quote, um, but so much, so many times people read this, and when they, I guess when they talk of election, they're so concerned of, you know, we talked about it earlier, the these quote-unquote injustice, or, mm-hmm. you know, how could only this many be saved? But if, if people would focus less on the fact that the gate is narrow, and focus more on the fact that the gate is open at all, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that the gate is open to us at all should astound us and bring a sense of awe where where the narrowness of the gate doesn't even matter it doesn't even come sure. to mind you know how how can we complain uh, to god about how many people he saves when when the fact remains it's all of grace he saves any at all and yeah go ahead so while well, i had a i had a question just to follow up sure. the question that you had you asked what this um, chapter should what we should take away, what we should, what it should mean to Christians. I guess I had I had an answer uh, that I was going to give to, but, but if, if it comes after your question, that's fine too. The other question is, what should this chapter mean to the unbeliever? I was already thinking about that answer before you asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> give well, it. Um, if you have an answer, go for it. I definitely <laughs> have an answer. I mean, this this I mean, what I'd even go as far as what what should this chapter mean to to any believer who is of a different group of faith, like. Roman Catholics or, or Anabaptists. Uh, there's different groups of Anabaptists that believe different things um, about about salvation, and and very often works is is mingled in there somewhere. And we see at the end of end of the the chapter how Paul explains that the the Jews who by seeking to to gain salvation through the law, um, they lost it. They, yeah. they, they could not attain salvation because no one's good enough. And so if you are seeking salvation through the law where you believe that works will save you, you are deceived. That there is um, nothing but uh, um, grace through faith that will save mm-hmm. you. It is completely God's mercy and has nothing to do with uh, your own will, your, your own doings. Um, it is completely a gift to him. So um, if that's if that's you, this 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 book or this chapter, I should say, would, should terrify you and should call into question what you believe and cause you. I would hope cause you to to repent of those beliefs and, and turn to Christ mm-hmm. um, and, and ask for mercy. And I guess that that actually kind of draws near to where my answer from the previous question for believers was. Um, what I what I understand it should give us great assurance. Um, That's because, the word I was missing. Yeah, because first <laughs> of all, as we started. Uh, as we started the chapter, you know, we know, you know, Paul explains God's promise never failed. It 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 might have been misunderstood yeah. uh, to have failed, 
and taken for granted, but it, ne- it never failed. Right. Uh, so we can have great assurance that since God's promise has never failed and, who, and based on who God is, his promise never will fail. Uh, secondly, it should bring us great assurance, uh, like you were touching on, Ben, that our election is uh, ba- on the basis of only free mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, we can therefore trust that, you know, we who, who have been called will be glorified, as he said in the previous chapter. Um, in in chapter eight, also, uh, if our election, w- because if our election was on the basis of works rather on the rather than on the call of him who calls, we could never truly have assurance, right? Because we we are changing; he is not. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we we can trust that, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, that um, he who called us will you know continue his work in us, and that he will c- sustain us and. Con- um, carry us through to the end and for those who are unbelievers we say this the invitation in christ is still open repent and believe the gospel the bible says that all those who call upon the name of the lord will be saved so repent turn from your sin turn to christ he is lovely and good and righteous and he and he alone can save you put your faith in him for he will never fail you we love you God bless and have a good day.